Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited today. Anthony Clark, talented actor, comedian, and amazing talent who I've known my entire career, and I have so many thoughts regarding him. Changed my life in a lot of ways when I was starting, and I'm grateful that he's here. Sometimes it's hard to get guests to come on the show. Anthony's one of those people because he's never, ever done a podcast before. And this is his first one, and I'm grateful that he's here. I want to thank you all for <laughs> Well, it was you or Mark Marin. There you go. <laughs> I want to thank you all for coming to the show and listening to the show and being so supportive of the show. I'm very, very grateful. It means a lot. And because I never know how much time I'm going to get with Anthony, because he's also an incredible businessman who probably owns four houses that are all palatial mansions all over California because of the success that he's had in this business. But as I look across from Anthony, I know exactly what I want to say right now, and it's a story that is pretty amazing. Anthony was one of five people chosen to do the HBO Young Comedian special out of Aspen with host the late Gary Shandling, a brilliant, brilliant man, obviously. And these were the people that were on the HBO Young Comedian special. Dave Attell, Louis C.K., Dave Chappelle, Anthony Clark, three guys on the show that I had either was working with or You were working with, with all of us at the time, weren't and, you? And uh, not all of you. And so it was an incredible show. And it was just amazing to see a show that was put together that was validation for me that maybe I did have an eye for comedy and maybe the people that I 
had seen that I thought were going to be special were really those people that would become special. And there's those moments that just hit you when you get emotional and you realize you're on the right track and hopefully you're doing the right thing with your life. And when I look here at Anthony Clark sitting across from me, he was in a situation where this was a huge break for him. But the day before, he did something to jeopardize things a little bit. He went skiing with another comedian, Kevin Meany, and I guess he really didn't take care of himself, and he got back, and his throat was sore, and he couldn't talk, and they called a doctor, and he couldn't speak at all, and they found out that it was laryngitis, and we had to tell the people that he had laryngitis, and there was 24 hours to the show, and there was no doubt in Anthony's mind that he was going to be able to talk. But the festival had a backup right there in case he couldn't. And for some reason, I don't know how he did it, he willed himself to do it. And when he was introduced, his voice worked and he did it and he did a great job. And he was part of one of the most amazing lineups in HBO Young Comedians history. And I think when you believe in yourself, you can figure out anything and you can will yourself to do anything and there was no reason how it was possible that anthony could go out there and do a five to seven minute stand-up set where he was yelling and talking loud and being animated when he had laryngitis and he didn't have a voice and he hadn't used his voice in 24 hours and then you got to walk past the hallway and know that there's somebody there in the wings waiting to take your place if you can't do it. That's enormous pressure. And, but Anthony was always the kind of guy who was naturally gifted. He could always make things happen. As a stand-up, he would go on stage and it was effortless and he would always kill. And as an actor, he would always go into these auditions and against all odds, with relatively no experience, he would always book the jobs, it seemed. And here he was at the Young Comedian special, and technically speaking, he hadn't been doing it a long time. But he got the gig, and no matter what the obstacles, he was not going to be denied. And with Kathy Griffin in the hallway waiting in the wings, he went on and crushed it and did an amazing job, and was associated with some of the greatest stand-up comedians of my or anybody's generation. And as I like to say, show me who you're with, and I'll show you who you are. And I think hanging out with Dave Attell, Louis C.K., and Dave Chappelle on an HBO Young Comedian special showed them that was the evidence. So if I take anything here from sitting across from Anthony and thinking about that story, the main thing is, is in your career, you're going to face adversity. You're going to face a lot of problems. There's going to be obstacles that come in your way that seem insurmountable. There's going to be people at your work that are waiting in the wings to take your job. But if you forge through and fight through it, 
and keep working as hard as you can and have the vision in your mind of what's going to take place positively as opposed to negatively, all those forces that are working against you will work for you and you'll have the kind of career that Anthony Clark has had. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary, and I'm telling you, go to IKillJFK.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, it will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to IKillJFK.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And without further ado, I shall introduce my guest today, who I'm very, very happy to have here. My guest, Anthony Clark, is a prolific television and film actor as well as a respected stand-up comedian. He's probably most well-recognized for his role as Greg Warren on the CBS syndicated series Yes, Dear, but also known for his fantastic recurring role on Ellen and his lead role on the television series for NBC that went three years, Boston Common. He grew up in a small town in Virginia and got into Emerson College in Boston and was named College Entertainer of the Year while studying there. He also won the National Top College Comedian Award as well from the American Collegiate Talent Showcase. 
During college, Clark started to do stand-up comedy as well as improv at a group at Emerson College. He rose very quickly through the stand-up ranks in Boston and got a big break when he was featured on the 1995 HBO Young Comedian special hosted by the late Gary Shandling with, get this, Dave Attell, Louis C.K., and Dave Chappelle. Incredible, incredible lineup. Clark has had many amazing, amazing moments in this business with some of the greatest directors and actors and comedians that you can imagine. Some of the ones I should mention here are in Peter Bogdanovich's film, The Thing Called Love with River Phoenix, and in television, so many amazing things like working with Dan Aykroyd in the show Soul Man. Clark also was the host for a year of the Emmy-nominated reality competition series for NBC Last Comic Standing, the year that Josh Blue won the crown. He's been a guest on multiple appearances on late-night talk shows, including Late Show with David Letterman, The Tonight Show, Late Night with Conan O'Brien, The Daily Show, and The Rosie O'Donnell Show. Recently, Clark executive produced and starred in this first one-hour stand-up comedy special for Showtime entitled Ambiguous, which is fantastic. You should check it out. Please welcome my guest today, actor, comedian, stand-up, my friend, a guy who I started with, Anthony Clark. You point to me when you're ready. <laughs> I'll be over here looking at your producers. They're very well-dressed. What kind of beer is it's it? green tea. Oh, green tea and a Heineken bottle. It's called actor's tea. <laughs> <laughs> How many of those green bottles do you have a day? Well, I knew I had to talk to you today, so at least... This is, well, Dan caught me at the Rathskeller. What's it called? The Cellar. It's this not notorious, legendary bar. Like, it's been here since what, Dan? Do you know of it? You've probably never been over there. No, I'm not a big drinker. Well, me neither. I go there for the ribs. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you should be a Tony Romas. <laughs> anyway, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go way, way back. Time machine. I want to find out where you grew up. Okay. What your family dynamic was like, your mom, your dad, your brothers you, and you've sisters. You've talked to her a million times. I know, but our audience doesn't know. So ten, She's ten. like, well, Barry Katz is the nicest Jew I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> but take us back where you grew up, the town, everything. Well, I grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia. It's like a little uh, town. Uh, it's famous for uh, Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority, Liberty University, I guess now is a big thing, a uh, big college there from the church. Um, when I was growing up, it was a really small town, you know, a uh, couple McDonald's, um, you know, small. I mean, but but people came out of there, huge athletes, Charles Haley, five Super Bowl rings, three with, uh, I think, San Franditti, and then two with Dallas. You know, I used to take the Haley boys to school every morning and it William Campbell. I was the only white boys that could go to the upstairs uh, bathroom. You know what I mean? Why is that? I don't know why. I think the humor, you know, I was coming from Lynchburg and my mom married a, you know, tobacco farmer. So we went 30 miles out of Lynchburg, which Lynchburg was a huge city to me at that point. You know, they had a Walmart, they had a McDonald's, you know, they had a stoplight, they had a downtown. And then it was out there, but, uh, you know, and then uh, 10th grade through 12th grade went back to Lynchburg, which I thought was the big city. 
And, you know, there, there, there's uh, entertainers out of my even high school. Phil Vassar, big country music star. Um, Vince Gill, huge, uh, what do you call it, bluegrass out of Gretna. But when you grew up there, what was like, what kind of home did you grow up in? Were you... It was, you know, it was like, you know, my mom got uh, divorced when I think I was five. My brother went off to Thailand with the Air Force. He was 11 years older than me, so he was 17. Uh, his girlfriend, Debbie, was pregnant at 14. They had my nephew, Steve. Debbie was 14. My brother was 17. First kid, you know, in the family. And, uh, you know, looking back on it, I didn't really know that I went to Boston to college that we were poor because we never, you know, hurt for food or anything. But when I went to Emerson College in Boston, you know, I was meeting these kids from New York City and London. and. But how did you get to the point where you're growing? Like, I don't know what kind of house you grew up in. Was it a, a far? I mean, it depended if I was living, if I was living with my dad uh, that summer or to go to Brookville or EC Glass High School. I lived in White Rock Hill, which was a very, uh, I don't know if Lynchburg has a has a ghetto or a, you know, a, a urban area. But uh, yeah, it was pretty, it was as tough as Lynchburg could get. And then my mom lived 30 miles out on a tobacco farm. So it was a farm or a community where you were scared to walk around at night. But we, me and my brother were never mistreated on White Rock Hill. We were the only two white kids that could get off the bus and walk to Granny's house and nobody would say anything and I think that was because my grandmother, Mamie Clark, was her name. You know, was just so loving and giving and uh, just so before her time, I guess. You don't get into Emerson College when you're hanging out at the tobacco farms. You have to be talented. I was in elementary school and there was this kid uh, who taught my fourth grade class. His name was Art Iannucci. He was a Greek kid, uh, I think. Uh, that was his ethnicity. He just finished Lynchburg College, and he taught fourth grade. And he decided, well, I'm going to do a musical with my, my you know, fourth grade class. And he did uh, Little Abner. I don't know if anybody knows what that is, but it used to be a musical on Broadway, I guess, a long time ago. And anyway, I was, you know, I remember I was auditioning for one of the roles, and I didn't get it. And, he, and I started crying. He goes, calm down. You're going to be Little Abner. <laughs> You're going to be the yeah, lead. Yeah. But I was mad that I didn't get the, the other one that he started auditioning for first. But how could you get the lead when you had no experience? It was fourth grade kids, Barry. I mean, what do you know? Either they can keep a note or they can't, you know? I mean, what do you tell about fourth grade kids trying to do a huge Broadway musical? So how did Stand you... here and don't pee. <laughs> <laughs> So I how, mean, what do you tell them? And when you did Little Abner and you, the play first night, there's a crowd there. and you They got went a, nuts. They, it, they, they acted like they had never been out for ice cream before. But how did you feel, even though you were young? I knew I, I knew some, I knew there was only two times in my life that I, something clicked like that. That was then. And then the first time I was in Atlanta, it was between my junior and senior year at Emerson and Boston. I was down there with David Cross. I was living in Atlanta. I was doing a play called To Kill a Mockingbird, 17th Street Theater in Atlanta. And I would go up with uh, Paul Clay and David Cross every night to go see them do stand-up. And, um, you know, we were at the Punchline one night in Atlanta, and uh, 
Dave introduced me to the guys that ran the club. I don't remember their names. Fox. Uh, was it Chris DePetta? Chris DePetta and Ron Fox or something like that. Uh, There's two of them. I don't remember. Ron Denunzio? Yep. That's it. And so... Chris DePetta and Ron Denunzio. And so what happened? So then? I went up and did stand up. First time? Five minutes. First time ever, you know, not in a college, you know, cafeteria environment. How did that go? I came off stage and Dave Cross, you know, came out and he goes, wow, wow. That went pretty good. And I'm like, I just need a minute, man, because I was emotional, you know. And uh, I just, it was the first time you knew that you were good at something. So I projectile vomited. That's not a lie. That's not a lie. You ran to the bathroom. No, it was not running anywhere. It was, it was like, thank you. Thank you. It was so emotional, you know, it was like. That summer in Atlanta, at the punchline, you were like, everybody, you know, was so good. I can't really remember any of the names. I think Brett Butler was up that, George Wallace. You said something that was really profound, which I think we all go through. And even my sons who are here right now watching, that's so emotional. And I think to myself, that moment when you finally do something and you realize, holy shit, I I can do this. I am great at this. Well, I wasn't good at anything else. You know, all my brothers and stepbrothers were great at, you know, sports and a athletics. And, you know, I mean, I was okay, but I wasn't great at it. You know, my brother was great at wrestling, and my stepbrother Leonard and Robert were great at football. Look, I played baseball and softball games. Come on. You were amazing. I saw you play softball, and I don't think you ever played softball. <laughs> <laughs> he struck out four times in a row and they're throwing the ball like this no one could believe it and he went to school on a, a athletic scholarship i was having vision problems that day. <laughs> um, he could not hit the ball like this whipping at it listen i i, I fouled one off <laughs> 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 I got a piece of one. Okay, so you finish the play. You really are excited so about I it. So I have that to live the, there another 12 years. You know, you have to live there another 12, 12 years, but you know that you can act, but you have to live there another 12 years. Right. Where do you find a place to go to acting camp? Like one of my sons is going to this great place, uh, Theatricum Botanicum, which is Will Gear from the Waltons oh, right, uh, place yeah. on Topanga Canyon. And he loves that. My other son doesn't like acting. I mean, right. he, he likes to watch it maybe, but he doesn't right. like to go. So, partake. What, so what do you do for the next 12 years? What's what's in Lynchburg? Well, I mean, it's very acting? limited. It's very limited as far as the arts. I mean... And you had no money. You know, I stayed involved with the, the, the Lynchburg Fine Arts Center and, you know, all the plays at my high schools. And I really loved it. And, you know, it was like, um, you know, people were asking you to be in this. It wasn't even... Uh, you know, it's just, I think comedy comes natural to people that just have it. You know, I mean, you don't have to think about being funny. You don't have to, you know, sit down and write things. They just bubble out of your mouth and you, people go, that's hysterical. And you write them on a napkin and you try to remember it. And even if you don't remember it, you still remember it because it's just, uh, it's just uh, an eruption of, of volcanic ash 
because that is the way you have a way to express, um, you know, who you are in a very conservative, uh, you know, a very, very conservative Republican, um, you know, place to grow up an environment. Were you the go-to guy for all these plays from that point forward after the Labner? Did they say you're the lead every time or? Yeah, but everybody wanted you to be in their thing. But there was a moment that I took some time off, I guess. You know, I guess my 11th and 12th grade year, I just didn't want to, you know, do it anymore. And then um, there was this guidance counselor. Her name was uh, Carol Artizone. Um, they were a Mormon family in um, in Lynchburg, which is very ironic uh, because that that's so weird to even say that. And uh, she was a guidance counselor at uh, the high school, and she goes, "Look, I've seen you do a couple things, and um, what do you want to be in life?" And I'm like, I didn't even know what to think because everybody wanted to be a baseball player or you know NASCAR or something. But uh, I didn't know that there was an opportunity to, um, I go, I want to be an actor. And as, as weird as that sounded to everybody in my family, you know, they would be like, okay, all righty. Where do you apply for that? Okay, so obviously your mom on the tobacco field house wasn't helping you fill out an application for Emerson. No. Obviously your dad in his area wasn't so helping the, you. So the, the guidance counselor basically just said, uh, uh, thank you, very talented. Maybe you should audition for a couple of these, uh, you know, colleges, programs. And uh, uh, Take our audience through the put, process because we don't know what well, the process she put, is. Well, she put a lot of mail in front of me. She goes, this is the envelope from Northwestern University in Chicago. They have an amazing theater arts program, an amazing film and, you know, radio and television production and film, all that. And um, then it was Northwestern, North Carolina School of the Arts. And uh, who else was it? Uh, what's the one in Pittsburgh? Carnegie Mellon. Carnegie Mellon. And then um, Juilliard. And Emerson. Got it. And so, and it costs money to apply to these things. Sometimes did a it? lot of money. I don't think it did then. <clears throat> Didn't? I think you just applied. Okay, so you applied paperwork first. And then you had to audition for the program. Okay, how many wrote back and said, we want you to audition, or you had to audition with the paperwork? Emerson was my first uh, visit. Okay, so you have to get to Boston, Massachusetts from Lynchburg. That cost money. Where my, you get the money? My to guidance counselor took me. Your guidance counselor flew you to... No, no. Drove me. Me, my mom, and her daughter to audition at Emerson on a Thursday afternoon. How long a drive was it from Lynch? No, we went there one time before for two days, and she goes, do you like Boston? And we were at Faneuil Hall, and I ordered tea, and they brought me hot tea. And I go, no, I do not like it. <laughs> When you order tea in Virginia, <laughs> you do not get this little baggie of hot water. <laughs> you get sweet tea, and it's refillable. Mama's little helper. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. You know, I'm not allowed to have that. That's bullshit. Can we curse? You can curse. No. Yes, you can. Merits is okay. So, Anthony, I was, um, I was just want to share. I just want to use this as a prop, if you don't mind. This, this, this bottle. 
So it's right there. I'm like, hmm, well, I don't really drink. I haven't had a you beer. You never drink. I know. I'm like, I haven't had a beer in like five years. Maybe I'll just, you know, we're at this party. Maybe I'll just try. He has worked in a bar <laughs> his whole life, and I've never seen him have a drink. And so I think, eh, I take the beer. I'm about to go like this. And one of my kids just runs by and just grabs the beer and throws it in the garbage. <laughs> it's like little, why is he a little secretive drinker? Is he a little is he a little at, at night when the door's shut, taking that little nip? I, I hope not. I hope not. So I still haven't had the beer. So that's uh, you've never had a beer. Actually, I have had a beer. You don't like it? Don't really like it. Yeah. Well, what about the mixed the cocktails? Occasionally, I'll have... How does it make you feel when you've had to? Are you tired? You want to go to sleep? I don't feel like I'm in control. Well, I that's, want to that's, feel like I'm in that's control. part of it. That's part of the magic. <laughs> <laughs> Are these too busy? Should I buy these? Oh, my God. That's so oh Kathy my. Griffin. So now tell me the what you planned for your audition for Emerson. I just got a monologue. You know, they said uh, prepare a monologue. I don't even remember which one it was. I think it was from a Tennessee Williams play. You know, I had a southern accent, obviously, so I wanted to stay, you know, in a southern kind of thing. Got it. So you go to the audition. There's obviously people waiting, yeah. and you have a number to go in. All right. You come into a room. How many people from twelve? Em twelve people from Emerson, and they're sitting in. And a they're highly, uh, you know, it's like a wine tasting group. You know, they're just so sour, and so they're not gonna like anything. And you like feel intimidation the moment you walk in. So you walk in and the energy is is bad. It's not bad. It's just you know it's upped. This is not a high school, you know. Musical theater audition for Dames at Sea or whatever. Got it. The, so you do the audition there. You walk out. When you walk out, how do you feel? Do you feel like great. you nailed it? Yeah. Got it. And how many hours do you think you took to rehearse that before you, you did it that day? I never like stand in front of a mirror and try it. I just keep doing it over and over in my head until I think it's right. You know, and then I, I let it out at once. This is auditioning. This isn't acting. You know, it's not like sitcom acting. This is a real audition for, you know, you know, there's a couple programs in uh, the country that you want to be in. You want to be involved in Yale, you know, Emerson, Northwestern to this day, Carnegie Mellon, North Carolina School of the Arts. There's a, there's a bunch of them. USC has a huge program, you know. Got it. So how long before you find out you got into Emerson? That afternoon. That afternoon. They walked out and said, you, you're, you're coming here. And I didn't go to any other meetings. So you canceled all the I, other meetings? Yeah, I was like, I, I love it here, you know. I didn't know about the reputation of Emerson. I didn't know that, you know, geez, you know, the people that went to Emerson. I didn't know all those people had already gone there. I didn't know Henry Winkler was from there. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know that, you know, it, it had, so I didn't know Jay Leno was from there. I didn't know any of that. So how do you afford to pay for Emerson Well, that's College? the next question is Carol goes, we can't afford it. And they're like, well, you know, um, we can, you know, we can look into work study. We can look into scholarships. We can look into grants. You're coming. So. 
So you were so extraordinary that they... I don't know that. I don't know what they thought. I don't know what they thought. I tell you what, in my career and hearing people have auditioned, I've never known anybody that went in for a college, I guess you'd call it audition or whatever for the program. To get into the acting program. That got told that, that same I, day. Well, they came out like three minutes later. You know, I was like... You know, I was like, I thought it was over, trying to get my coat, and we had to go right back in the car back to Virginia, which is a 12-hour trip. So, and they went, hey, Anthony, hold up for a minute. And then, you know, they talked to uh, Miss Artizone, who was my guidance counselor, and she turned back to me, and she goes, you're in. So you, you go to Boston, you figure out how to make it work, and then that's when I met you. Well, I didn't know if I was going to make it through college because I was a, you know, C-average student in high school. I was like, how in the world am I going to understand, you know, college math? But the thing about Emerson is there is no math. <laughs> there is no science. <laughs> you just have to be pretty, pretty, pretty. <laughs> hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project that I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You said the first time you did stand up in front of a regular club crowd Atlanta. was in Atlanta. Yeah. But you entered a college comedy competition when you were in college. What was right. the inspiration to do that? Just everybody was doing it. You know, David Cross, Laura Keitlinger, Mike Bent. Everybody in my comedy group, this is pathetic, from uh, Emerson. We had a, there was two comedy groups on uh, campus at the time, Emerson Comedy Workshop and This is Pathetic. And you know the people that have come from Emerson Comedy Workshop, Dennis Leary, who else? Mario Cantone, you know, brilliant, brilliant people. And uh, the other one was This is Pathetic. And, of course, my buddy David Cross, you know, that's the one I wanted to be in. So David Cross from, of course, Atlanta, Georgia. So funny. And so you start doing stand-up. You enter a comedy competition. How do you win? I don't know. They decided that I won. I mean, it was all on a video, uh, the the submissions. But then the huge finale was in Atlanta. I mean, on uh, Nashville, and it was called American Collegiate Talent Showcase. Acts A C T S. So that's what happened. So I came back right after that, and I did two uh, open mic nights in the same night in Boston, all on Commonwealth Avenue, Stitches, which I got into the comedy riot, and then 
up to your club, play it against Sam's, which, you know. So you entered the comedy competition in Boston, the Boston Comedy Riot. What happened there? I got in. Got in. You were in the finals, weren't you? In the finals. Me, Wendy Liebman, Tom Bailey. Yeah. Hysterical to this day. Yep. Still think about him. Yep. I'm a man. <laughs> <laughs> He's an easy And who won that competition? Brian Frazier won it. Brian Frazier, that's right, from yeah. Emerson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. And so you started hosting shows at my club on Sunday. Sunday night and then got Wednesday nights at uh, Stitches. Then the first show I ever saw professionally in Boston was Sweeney Meanie Wednesday night at uh, Stitches. And this was a very, very unique and original kind of show at Stitches because... They would host it together. Steve was a character guy. Kevin Meany was a very animated kind of character. And they would do a man on the street thing at the end with video camera with wires, no battery packs. So they would drag these huge long wires out on the street and they'd be there filming guys out on the actual Commonwealth Avenue with cars driving, stopping, <laughs> and there'd be a huge movie screen inside the club. It was incredible. Meet Kevin so, Flynn. Who else was on that? Jackie Flynn. People would just, they'd plant comedians on the street yeah, sometimes. and just act like these random people are just walking up. Kevin Meany made it brilliant by uh, being out there, and he would go, look up! And they would shoot a street light. He goes, a full moon! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, it was so, like a fraternity humor to it. You could talk to people and just do... Complete improv, you know? It was unbelievable. And I would sneak out on the street and just watch Anthony do it. And he'd be talking to somebody. You'd be watching him from maybe like 15 yards away and hearing him a little bit. You'd hear the laughter and applause from inside the club. And the people talking to him, they didn't know that it was being beamed on the inside of the club. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Well, my second stop that night after the comedy riot was played against Sam's, legendary. I don't know if you've tooted your own horn or buttered your own muffin about it. I mean, it held what? Uh, I mean, if you packed it and you knew you had the fire marshals on you every night. 150 if I packed it, about 125 if I didn't. <sighs> you could not move in that club. If there was a fire in that club, it would have been bad. There was one exit up this little <laughs> stairwell. <laughs> And you had 300 people in there on a Paula Poundstone night. Barry was getting Paula Poundstone to play Play It Against Sam's. And she would sell out every show. Well, she could have sold out theaters, but she played Play It Against Sam's. I had thousands of dollars in cash. I was a young guy. I'm like, oh, my God, I, I guess this business is lucrative. really uh, lucrative. And I just never had anything like that before. But Anthony came in. Remember who was hosting that night? Zito and Bean? Yes. What a memory. You're not getting Alzheimer's. Here, are you ready for this? Yeah. Uh, let me see. A Remember their, their bed where one was spinning over? I'm a Jew, up a Jew, up a Jew, up a Jew. I'm a Jew, and he's a wop. He's a wop, a Jew, a Jew. I'm a wop, or a wop, and a Jew. What are we going to do? That was their opening. Steve Bean. And, was a Jew, and Chris, and Chris was a wop. That's right. And that's how they would open the show. Jew, wop, a Jew, wop, a Jew, wop, 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 wop. <laughs> and, the sand, and then they'd shake their hands and go. And then one of them would lay on a bar stool, and the other one would take a swig of beer, 
and spit it over him like that and do the Hawaii Five O theme song. That's right. Ba, 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 ba. And he's got a stream of beer going over him. And he's on a bar stool trying to get up in the ocean. And the crowd was going mental. Yeah, the cerebral comedy. Oh. <laughs> hey, it was a college room. That's what it was. It was a college room. It was incredible. And it was packed. And Anthony I killed. remember my first two jokes there, which... You know, I was persecuted for like in my own soul. I had to go. What am I? What am I saying? One was a Madonna joke, and I love Madonna. What was the joke? I can't tell you that. I'm not. I said I would never say it again. And then one was a Wham joke, um, George Michael's joke. It was the "Wake Me Up Before, before you, you Go Go." go. I remember. Got it. Soundtrack of my life, ladies and gentlemen. I'm a Jew and he's a wop. Jew up a Jew up. Why did that make me laugh? I don't know. It's funny. I don't know. And so I decided I want to manage people. I wanted to manage Anthony. Had you managed anyone at that point? Louis C.K. was my first client, and I think you were my second client. And so I decided to manage you. And this was an interesting thing. One of your friends was an agent, Perry Kipperman, a really amazing agent. She was at Bressler Kelly Kipperman. Yeah, a boutique agency out of New York City. Incredible agency. Guess who they handled? They handled Leslie Nielsen. Yep. Jack Nicholson. Yep. And you. Mary McDonald, Adam Horowitz. And so they took on a little-known client like Anthony Clark. A little stand-up from Boston. I'm just starting in the business. I have no idea what's how I scored the agency. I'm thinking, ah, well, how's this going to work? Are they going to be supportive of him? The first television audition that comes in is I for an NBC, NBC pilot called Social Studies. They fly me out. I get Social Studies for NBC. Who's the dude that uh, produced uh, uh, Bosom Buddies with Tom uh, Thompson? Chris Thompson. I interviewed him. He passed away. What? Yeah, he passed away about a year ago. I interviewed him before he passed away. I didn't know that. Wow, I didn't know that. Wow, that sucks. He was such a brilliant man. Anyway, um, I auditioned for that, the NBC sitcom, uh, Social Studies, and... um, dogfight at Warner Brothers. So I was at NBC and then went to Warner Brothers on the same day. And then Perry calls me about 3.30. I'm at Griffith Park smoking a joint because I'm so nervous. I'm shaking. I think I have Parkinson's. You know what I mean? Just from the flight, you know, when they have to fly you first class. I've never been flown first class in my life. And, you know, I'm staying at the Madrion and, and Perry calls me and goes, sit down, big guy. I go, what? She goes, you got the pilot. And you also got the movie Dogfight, Warner Brothers, starring River Phoenix, Lily Taylor, Richard Panabianco, Mitchell Whitfield. You know what he's from? What big movie is he from? My Uncle Vinny. That's right. God. And that was like, here I am, a young manager we're basically starting together. Never been to L.A. before. We never done this before. And the first day he's auditioning for things, it's a movie and a television series. And then I went up at the improv that night. It was the improv's, uh, what was the Bud Friedman thing on A&E? Evening, evening at, at, the at the improv. improv. Yes. And Bud Friedman, let me read this next guy's. Oh, oh Lord. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Wow. Oh, okay. Anthony Clark. Wow. 
<laughs> now, I have to ask you this because I've never asked you this before. And just be honest when it comes to this. When you go in and it's your first thing and you... You got to let it go, man. You can't think about how important it is. You can't think about anything. You have to stay like Wade Boggs. You know what I mean? You know, you know you've done some probably bad things in your life. You know that... Look, there was no social media at that point. You didn't have to hear people say this or that about you. You know, if they didn't have your number, you had no idea. You, promotion at that point was on a marquee or in the newspaper on the radio. You couldn't self-promote yourself, you know? And that's what a lot of things are today is, you know, people have, uh, you know, their websites and their accounts. And, you know, they develop a following over social media. But then it was just like, it wasn't that. It was a newspaper and radio and, you know, if a movie was advertised, you know, it was by, by design. When you got the movie and the television pilot. I knew that I was right. You know, that I, you don't know. I mean, you'd say you want to be an actor to people and they, they just look at you weird. You know, there's, you know, the chances of that happening. Like one in a million. Yeah, it's like probably lower odds than that. But. but the fact that you knew when you were a young kid you want to be an actor and your first day in L.A. and you book a major television pilot and a major film, I want you to know something. In my career since that day, I don't think that's ever happened before to me. And I don't know any other actor or comedian where they book two things in one day, a film and a television show. So afterwards, you must have had that emotional thing that went through you again. Well, I think the, the big thing for me was, you know, I was so into film. You know, I loved film, and River had already been nominated for an Academy Award. So I was really excited to work with him because he was, you know, he was the Leonardo DiCaprio of his day. And, um, you know, I was just was like uh, taking that three months in Seattle was... Um, you know, very uh, eye-opening and, uh, you know, got to work with, the, you know, how many people did I meet? And that experience of three months in Seattle with all these people, you know, Gus Van Zant, and, you know, and the next movie, um, you know, had a direct effect of River Phoenix again. It was another River movie, The Thing Called Love with Peter Bogdanovich, starring Samantha Mathis, Sandra Bullock, um, you know, I mean, so many great, uh, everything, great country music stars. Just, you know, to be in, involved in it at that level is, is, is intense. It's, it's overwhelming, you know. I, you don't really know what to make of it. Even when it's over, you don't know what to make of it, you know. You hope you did your job. You hope you, um, you know, we're good. And um, all you can do is what you can do. And... You just hope it's the best and you just want to give a great performance. You know, you, when, when people are paying you, you know, that kind of money and, um, you know, or, you know, you get your, you get your name up in lights. It's, uh, I love everything about this whole career except the fame. That's the one weird thing. And Dan can tell you that I'm putting a gate up around my house right now because there's tour buses and they've allowed them in, Holly, in, the, in the Hollywood Hills to actually have volume. So when they, talk to, when they talk to the tour people on the bus, it's not just in their ear. It's 
you know, you can hear it from inside your house. And that's just weird to me. And uh, I think I got scared when um, my brother was in from Virginia Beach and I had my mom in and everything. And there's a knock at the door and I opened the door and it's like, a, I don't know, like a 50 year old woman. And she's holding like a nine year old girl's hand and she goes, oh, wow, it is you. And I go, well, I don't really know how to respond. I don't know. I don't know what that means. She goes, no, don't be scared. I mean, the tour bus uh, stopped and said, this is where you lived. And we just wanted to see if he was telling the truth. And um, so, wow. <laughs> and you just get a little, I mean, that's just a little weird. I mean, and my neighbors, you know who my neighbors are. You know, Charlize Theron and William H. Macy, who's up. You know, he said some really terrible things. He told me one day, he was jogging by my house. He had his little headband on, you know, like he really works out. <laughs> and he goes, Clark, you're single-handedly bringing down the real estate. <laughs> Too many parties. I just want to know, like, do you believe that you are just a gifted guy and acting when you got those two roles did you believe that hey i'm just a natural i had this when i was born or do you believe you're one of those guys who like gutted it out and, and i think it's 50 50 i think you know i think 50 percent is luck if you get the opportunity to be there when you're supposed to hit the i look at it like a pro baseball player when you when you're given the opportunity you you better hit the ball you know be prepared to hit the ball be be ready to uh, take your opportunity and uh, make the most of it, you know? I mean, I didn't know when it was going to be, but I knew I wanted to be prepared for everything that, uh, you know, my agency sent me in to do, you know? Got it. So you started booking acting job after acting job after acting job. That pilot didn't go. You did the movie. What was your first break in television where something actually got on the air? Um, I think uh, right after uh, I did Dogfight with River and all those guys, um, I got the uh, the thing we talked about before, the Montreal thing, and then HBO Young Comedian Special came after that. And then right after that, you know, I went to do a reoccurring uh, character on Ellen. And, yeah, so uh, Ellen was your first television series that got on the first air. First sitcom to, to be on air. You know, not not a pilot. Tell us how that happened, meeting Ellen. I think I just met her at a party with, uh, you know, I had just done the thing called Love with uh, Dermot Mulroney and uh, and River and them, and I came out here uh, to do uh, something else. Maybe it was just a stand-up thing, and I met Ellen um, at a party with, uh, you know, all their Hollywood friends, you know. Uh, Dermot was married to, you know, uh, Catherine Keener. She was nominated for an Oscar uh, for being John Malkovich. Yeah. And just a bunch of talented people. So after Dogfight and the Ellen thing. Well, right after Dogfight was the Grapes of Wrath on Broadway, which was the biggest thing in my whole career, as I feel, you know, to be on Broadway. Take us through that audition. Well, it's just, uh, you know, Frank Giolotti was the director, and they go, someone's leaving. Uh, I believe his name was, um, I can't remember his name. I'm not even going to say it because I'm going to say it wrong. But anyway, he was going to do a Coen brother movie, so he had to leave the show. 
And they go, uh, Jim uh, Jode, uh, Gary Sinise was playing Tom Jode. It was his brother. Um, you know, so there's a role opening, and um, I auditioned, and I got it. And, uh, and that was with John C. Riley, Gary John Sinise. John C. Riley, Gary Sinise, uh, Terry Kinney. You know, so many brilliant stage actors. And I'll never, you know, I'll, I'll never um, underestimate how much they work. You know, they work Tuesday night, Wednesday matinee, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday matinee, Saturday night, Sunday matinee, eight shows, three hours, every show. And you can't fake it. You know, that it's sold out your Tony award-winning show. And I was used to comedy and, uh, the grapes of wrath is n not one funny, <laughs> nothing funny. I was staying at the apartment on the upper West side. Yeah. You were staying at my apartment. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> what was the other one? What was the other one? That was the one on 82 West 82nd street where Central I got Park that for West. $935 a month. That was my first apartment. And I made a deal with four comedians to pay me two hundred a month. Me they could use Ed it as Regine. a hotel. You add the machine regime, Nick DiPaolo <laughs> and Louis C.K. <laughs> There's a book that be, could be written right there. So at this point, you've done the HBO Young Comedian special. You did the Five Funny Guys special, which was fantastic with Mario Joyner and Jeff Cesario, Tom Kenny and Jonathan Solomon for MTV. So you're working with all these great comedians. You're doing the club shows. You win the competition, but you're also booking big films. You're on Broadway. At that point, in around 1996 or so... I said, I want a sitcom. Do you feel you're a better actor or a better stand-up comedian? Well, I always wanted to be an actor. You know, stand-up was something to do to uh, make the bridge to uh, this town, or New York acting, too. I mean, you can be just as successful as an actor in New York as L.A., but I always, for me, was acting. You know, I I, um, I appreciate uh, the stand-up. You know, my brothers in arms and stand-up, I, I adore them. You know, to this day, I can go to the improv. And I guess what I'm most proud of is the way the comics receive me. You know, they they I think they respect me. I think they feel that I was original. And I always stand up for them. You know, I always uh, am on the comic side, not the club owners. So... Um, but I think, you know, acting for me and, um, you know, it, it, it was big being in these movies. And, um, you know, I guess the next big step was uh, working with Max and Dave. Uh, Max Muchnick and Dave Cohan, who were who executive producers of uh, Will and Grace and started my first show that uh, ran for more than uh, a pilot, which was Boston Common. And they were from Emerson College. Uh Max is, I don't, Dave went to Sweetbriar or somewhere in Virginia. I don't, I don't know where he went. It's not Sweetbriar. That's an all woman's college. He dated, he married a girl from Sweetbriar, but uh, I don't know where Dave went, but Max was my buddy from uh, Emerson. But Boston was your first thing where they developed something around Boston you, Common. And you were the lead with Tasha Smith. Who had met in Montreal that summer with you. Yeah. And uh, do you think it all happened because of Montreal? I'm not sure at that point. I don't know. There was the so Montreal much going Just on. for Laughs Festival, big festival, your first time up there. Everything happened. Uh, the big HBO thing happened and a lot of things. I mean, it was huge at the time. I, I think it's still a huge, a beautiful event. 
I don't know if they hand out television deals like they used to, you know. But I, I think, you know, a lot of people got television deals out of there. I think, you know, me, me obviously, I think it, came, it was a product of Montreal. Probably the most important uh, week of my life. I mean, everything happened after uh, Montreal. And I'm going to Montreal in two weeks. There you go. I'll see you up there. Oh, you'll be there? Yes, our podcast was chosen to what? be there. We're doing a live podcast on Friday, July 29th at noon at the Hyatt Regency, and we're going to do a live at show. At Just there. for Laughs? At Just for Laughs, really, really. Bruce Hill? Yeah, second time in three years. And so you get Boston Common, you're now making big money, because sitcom money, even when sitcom money is shitty for a sitcom actor. It's better than a stand-up. It's huge. Even if you're getting the lowest amount as a lead, you're getting like $25,000. And it's way more than that a lot of times. And if you do 22 episodes of something, all that of a sudden up. you're thrust in a situation where you're making high six figures or a million dollars and your life changes. How did your life change as the lead on a sitcom? Well, you know, during Boston Common, I still try to go out and do stand-up on the weekends, and you, you realize you're exhausted. You know, it's like taking a huge, uh, huge college campus test every Friday night when you shoot the show. You have to know, you have to memorize 50 pages of script. And let me tell you, if you don't do it, there's somebody on the next bus that will do it. So you better be good at it. And um, you're not playing around with you know, you're not going to mess with ABC or NBC or CBS's money. Um, if you don't do it right and you don't look right and you don't show up and you're ready to go, then, you know, there's always uh, another alternative. So there's a lot of pressure to it. I know a lot of people uh, look at sitcom or, or actors in general, no matter what, you know, movie or and they're like, they're so overpaid. Well, you know, are they? Are athletes overpaid? Is LeBron overpaid? Is anyone overpaid? And so. the thing is, during television, you only have a certain amount of time to do other things. But it seemed like even after you booked Boston Common, then you booked The Rock, that big movie with Sean Nicholas Connery Cage and, and Sean uh, Connery. And you're working in the summer in between and you never it, stopped working. Well, it, I mean, it, it is. But, uh, you know, you're from the school of while it's uh, while it's happening, you need to go ahead and uh, partake, you know, because... This is what you've wanted your whole life. and uh, What I always found amazing about you is that something ended and then you just go on one of your first auditions again. Like after Boston Common ends, it's three years. One of the rare shows that gets canceled after three seasons. Normally you do three seasons. They just give you the fourth season for syndication. It was a pretty depressing time when you're right that close and you get canceled. And what happens? You go on your next audition, you book Soul Man with Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know. And then that show goes a year. You think you're going to be bummed out about something. Then one of your next auditions after that is Yes, Dear. There was no audition. It was just asking me to do it. So they just gave you the offer. Well, yeah. And then they said, you got to meet Mike O'Malley. And I go, what? I'm not <laughs> working with this ESPN guy. He's not even an actor. <laughs> This guy's a cheese ball from New Hampshire. Did you know him before? No. I go meet him, man. Go to lunch with him. And I go, all right. And I met him and he looked at me and he goes, look, man, I'm not a big fan. 
at the time he was doing these great character of ESPN spots, these Boston spots. Yeah, yeah. The Rick. That's what it was called. Where you had little Red Sox dolls yeah. and they would pretend to play. The first thing he said to you is, listen, I got to tell you, I'm not a fan. <laughs> Did you laugh? I love Mike. I mean, Mike's come up into my dressing room when, you know, I was like, I'm not going on tonight. He goes, let me tell you, you are not going to fuck with my money. <laughs> Don't mess with me. So they made you the offer and you accepted it. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I met Liza, who is Mike, played Mike's wife forever on yesteryear, and Jeannie, who played my wife. And uh, it was a really, you know, six years. That's longer than high school, you know, six years every day. And we had a blast. I think we... Uh, 122 episodes. 122 episodes. Syndication. All over the world. Big money. And my little uh, life growing up in Virginia, I could have never imagined, you know, CBS. Come on. It's the Carol Burnett Network. You know what I mean? That's where you went every day to work. Carol Burnett Studios. Well, it's three of them. Mary Tyler Moore. They call it three different things. Radford, Mary Tyler Moore, Carol Burnett. And so was there a point in doing the show where you got tired of it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, I'm like I said, it's like, it's a huge, it's 50 pages of script every week that you not only have to memorize, I mean, you have to have it down. I mean, it has to be like, you know, ingrained in your head. And I mean, it, it ain't easy, but it ain't tough compared to working in a coal mine or, you know, cleaning hotel rooms at the Days Inn in Orlando. I mean, it is what it is. But uh, at the same time, you know, it was uh, a relief to be able to get back from the shooting of it and go down to the improv and be around all my soldiers in arms, you know, everybody from Nick Swartzen to Zach Galifianakis and Jeremy Hotz. And, you know, that's a little clubhouse down there. People don't realize that. That is a little uh, fraternity clubhouse. And... Um, you earn your you earn your ways up into you get stage time there and one of the things I found with you during yesteryear that I never found with you before it was the first time in my life of knowing you where I felt that you created drama you never did that before. You were always a guy who was the easiest going guy to work with. But there were days where you told me that you made things more difficult for people on that. Why did that little idiosyncrasy start there? And how did you get rid of it? I think you just get caught up in your own hype. You know, you think you're untouchable. You know, you you look at the ratings on, you know, the Nielsen's and where your show's coming in and you know how important you are to your producers and your network and, uh, you know, but I think for everyone in Hollywood, you know, um, you're only here for a minute. So enjoy what you're doing. And when it gets to be a hassle, just step away. It's not a big deal. It's, you know, they've given you the sun and the moon to do this. And, um, you have to understand that you are very uh, fortunate to be in this position to begin with. So uh, I think take nothing for granted. And, um, you know, um, 
it's just like being a pro athlete. I mean, you know, I mean, everyone grows up wanting to be Joe Montana or Brett Farr or, you know, Tom Brady or something. But what's the reality of that? You know, you have to have a super arm of being, I mean, something's got to happen that's beyond your control to make that happen. And I, I think that's why it's like 50-50 talent and 50-50 luck sometimes just, but always be ready for, because if I wasn't ready for that um, audition at Emerson College that morning to go in front of them and get accepted to the program, you know, I'd be working a drive through at, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Would I be as happy? Probably because there would be chicken. <laughs> <laughs> All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. You can tell me one word, a sentence, anything that comes to mind, and we'll go for it. The late River Phoenix. Oh, just brilliant. Uh, like a really mentor in my life as far as uh, discovering that it's not all about business and money. It's sometimes about, um, you know, uh, the chain of uh, the world and Mother Earth and uh, things that are bigger than or in your uh, control sometimes. Where were you when you found out he died? I was in New York City. I was supposed to do a Sunday night show at Caroline's, and they asked me, did I want to cancel? And I told them no, but um, I should have. I wasn't very funny, and I mourned. Then I went to, you know, Gainesville the next day and um, was down there with his brother Joaquin and everybody, his sister Rain and... Everybody, Bobby Bukowski and Michael Stipe, just a lot of his friends who, um, he was very special. It's a shame that he died at such a young age, but it's a shame that every artist dies at such a young age. Sean Connery. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't even know what he said. He spoke <laughs> English, but I had no idea what he was saying. <laughs> I think he said something to me. I think he, he looked at me at one point and he goes, Anthony, you are such a knuckle. <laughs> and I looked at Michael Bay. I guess it's good. <laughs> I didn't know what I didn't know what he said. So I didn't want to. <laughs> you are such a nut. Nut? Is that what he said? Did he call me a nut? David Letterman. Oh, it's so weird, man. My and Letterman's relationship is so weird. You did seven times. I don't know how many. But he, you know, I think The Tonight Show was my first uh, big uh, stand-up. Uh, With Jay Leno. Yeah, Leno was my first. And then Letterman was like, we have been following you forever in New York City. Daniel. Uh, Kellison. Yeah, Dan Kellison. Kept, you know, looked at me for a year and a half to be on The Letterman Show. It's like, come on, man. And then you just did The Tonight Show. Because and I did was... The Tonight Show, and then Letterman called back and went, what? So anyway, you know, Dave is my, you know, I have three heroes in the world. So what's the first thing Dave ever said to you? Get a job. <laughs> <laughs> Louis CK. Louis CK. I love Louis so much. It is, uh, we are like, uh, what's that uh, movie with uh, John C. Riley and uh, Step, Br Step Brothers? Yeah, yeah. We're just, we were coming back. I think we did the University of Buffalo. Anyway, we decided to drive out there from Boston. It's a 12-hour, 10-hour trip. 
So we had had enough of each other the whole drive out. And, you know, I couldn't stand to watch Louie open up for me. I thought it was the worst. So boring. So not funny. Just so terrible. And I have to sit through this again. Because I represented Louie and I asked you to have him open. And you did me the favor and you would always grudgingly put him on to open for you. As well, well as I Jesse. knew I would kill. But Jay Moore, you I like knew that. I would kill. Yeah. Because Louie would just bring the fucking just he's so smart but he wasn't a uh, he was 18 at yeah the time. but he his uh his writing was like unbelievable anyway we're coming back from buffalo and you know i would get up there and dance and sing and do cartwheels and louis would look at me like oh <laughs> he, <doesn't. laughs> he didn't even like i was funny either and uh, we were coming back. I don't know. We were in Rochester for the weekend or University of Buffalo. I don't remember where. And I started playing The Cure in a cassette. And he looked at me because I guess I had played it 10 hours all the way out there. And he looked at me and he goes, you're not going to play that again, are you? And I was so into show me, show me, show me. You know, it was just so. And uh, there's one minute that I'm feeling good. And I'm looking out the window, and Louis ejects the cure out of my, you know, console and throws it out the window right in front of me, <laughs> right in front of my face. He goes, bye. And we're going, you know, 16 miles an hour on the New York Thruway. And he could tell that I was so upset. I was hurt. He just took a part of me and threw it out the window. And then he took off his sunglasses, these ones he had just bought. I think they were 30 bucks. He bought them in New York. And he threw them out the window. <laughs> and he looked at me and goes, are we okay? <laughs> are we even? He goes, you hurt me, I hurt you. <laughs> this is the one I remember from New York. New York City, the only place in the world where you go, hey, don't pee on that, that's mine. <laughs> Louis had lost three cars in New York City the first month. And one of them was mine. <laughs> My first car. You let him borrow it? Yeah, and then he gave it to Sarah Silverman so he could believe. <laughs> and she lost it and it got towed away. <laughs> yeah, it's you real, can't make that up. It's real funny. That's a little more than the $30 sunglasses. <laughs> You can't throw my Camaro out the window. You bought my first car, didn't you? I think so I, I could did. go to Springfield. Yes, I did. What was from that? From Ed Regime. Yeah. It was like it didn't even have a stick shift. The late Gary Shandling. Love him. I mean, I don't know much about him other than he hosted the HBO. I know that he came out after the HBO Young Comedian special. And after I went off stage, he went, Well, you'll never see him on cable again. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Aykroyd. Um, like brilliant. Knew him from um, a bunch of different uh, stuff. Uh, you know, Dan was, uh, Dan is just, I mean, anybody you're connected to in that time of Saturday Night Live, uh, whether it's Gilda Radner, Bill Murray, I mean, I mean, that's just legends of the game. Bill Hicks. <sighs> what an influence, man. What a voice of the truth. That's just vinegar and water. It's just, hey, everybody. Bill Hicks, I remember his opening line. Hey, everybody. 
let me put a big fake fucking smile on my face and try to get through this shit one more time. So I can fill the worthless fucking void in your souls. I'm just kidding. Every night's magic. <laughs> the late, great Bill Hicks. Where was he from? He's a Southern. I don't even know where he's from. He's Southern. Houston, Texas or something? Oh, he's Houston, yeah. A show you hosted for a year last, Comic Standing. I shouldn't have done that. You know, I was coming right out of yesteryear, and I don't know. You know, they kept asking me to wear a suit and do their own written jokes. And I mean, I, I wasn't ashamed of it. I think it came off good. Who won that year? Josh Blue? Yes. I think he's, he's a, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Ellen DeGeneres. Love her to death to this day. I think she started so many people's careers. Uh, been a voyeur as far as, uh, you know, um, you know, coming of age in Hollywood, uh, really not being uh, shy of saying anything, being who she is. Sandra Bullock. A complete nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> now, what can you say about Sandra? She's America's darling. Good Lord. Every movie in the world. Jay Moore. Look, I love Jay. I mean, I seem to remember you were at some motel somewhere. He was opening for you. Yeah, I think we were doing University of North Carolina that night, Chapel Hill or something. And he was opening for me, and uh, he came backstage, and he goes, guess what? No, no, he came to the hotel room, and I was in a nap, and I was like, this better be good. Because you know I loved a nap before the show. <laughs> so did he. Yes. And I opened the door, and he goes, I go, what? <laughs> <laughs> he goes, I got Saturday Night Live. And I love that for him. You were the first one that found out. I love that for him. I mean, Jay is a very talented kid. He came to the uh, dogfight premiere that night, and he met River and Joaquin and Lily, and you could see it in his eyes that Jay wanted to be a big deal. And he, you know, he is. He is. But what he said about you, he said you were the only guy that he knew that he could tell that he got Saturday Night Live. And you would actually be genuinely happy for him with no animosity or jealousy. Well, what, why would I be mad about that? I don't want to do Saturday Night Live. I mean, Jay was in a position that he was going up in Greenwich Village every night at the cellar, your room on 3rd. Boston Comedy Club. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jay was, uh, you know, Jay was Justin Bieber of uh, the New York City comedy world there for a minute. You know, always the new kid, you know, the new guy that's... But like you, able to book the acting jobs. Yeah, I mean, Jay's a great actor. No doubt about it. Michael Bay. Michael Bay is, uh, you know, I, I don't really know him, uh, you know, to hang out with at all, but uh, as a professional, always insanely supportive, um, always talked to me and other uh, occupations that I had and... But, uh, I mean, to this day, I mean, he's up there with everybody, right? I mean, he does huge movies. Gary Sinise. Gary Sinise is just brilliant. He is, uh, cares about everybody. Um, you know, I've never seen an actor. When you have to do that on the New York stage every day, maybe twice a day, and put that much into it, you know it's art. It's not a, it's not a business. It's, uh, he's not doing it for money, man. I mean, that guy is... Um, He's the real deal. Dave Chappelle. 
Dave Chappelle is just the voice of our generation. He is, uh, you know, he's a D.C. kid. You know, my my big city and coming out of Virginia was D.C. I love it. Um, he, uh, Dave Chappelle, just uh, he has a, a way of orchestrating um, just a crowd that uh, he he can turn a crowd into a riot, a frenzy. Dane Cook. Dane has an ability to turn a, a mediocre crowd into a swarming beehive, you know, just from his energy and his, you know, it, it, it's something very special. Tell me your five favorite comedians of all time. David Tell is my favorite, I think, of all. I mean, my favorite five comics are, and I have to give them, you know, I have to remember them because it, it's almost, uh, I just have to go in order. Bill Hicks. Um Bill Hicks, Troy Baxley out of Denver, Colorado. Probably nobody knows him. They will know. He is one of the most brilliant people. He still does stand up out of Denver. I begged him to come out here a million times. He won't. Can I give you one, Troy Baxley? Can I do his joke on the air, giving him credit? Of course. Will he be mad if I no. do his This is Troy Baxley, my first time in Denver. He goes, uh, yeah, today the Denver, Colorado prison system let out five pedophiles at the same time. And uh, since it's so hard for them to find a place to live, they all decided to live together. Since you can't live near a schoolyard or a park. He goes, this is my thing about five pedophiles living together. <laughs> he goes, where the hell are you going to find a five-van garage? <laughs> <laughs> he goes, can you imagine them moving in? Dibs on the basement. <laughs> <laughs> so dark. 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 Bill Hicks, Troy Baxley, uh, Kevin Meany, Nick Swartzen, Zach Galifianakis. I just bought a... Uh, I can't believe it's yogurt shop. <laughs> I don't sell yogurt, I sell soup. <laughs> People taste it. They're like, wow, I can't believe this is yogurt. <laughs> I go, it's not. It's soup. <laughs> Your proudest moment in show business? I guess going out there the first time on um, the Grapes of Wrath that had already won the Tony Award and seeing the standing ovation. Just at the beginning of the show, when the actors take the stage, it's a standing ovation. I don't know if that's because of the New York Times review or it won the Tony. I just think it was such respect and um, complete, uh, you know, they knew they knew what was about to happen. And, I, and you know, they're paying at, at that time. What what year was that? 96 or something. Mm -hmm. So they're paying 120 a ticket, 150. I don't know. I don't even know what it is now. But that's when I thought I was an actor, you know, is that's when I, when, you know, I got to talk to Frank Giolotti. He's the director. And I go, what do you want me to do different? He goes, nothing. Just do, it. just do what you're doing. One of the things I want to comment about what you just said to everybody listening, the man across from me has done probably over 300 hours of television has gotten paid extraordinary millions and millions and millions of dollars doing television. One episode of the shittiest television show this guy across from me did was a 
10,000 times more people saw it than the Grapes of Wrath. But his proudest moment was in front of 2,000 people every night in the theater. Maybe at best 50,000 people saw the Grapes of Wrath. But that's his proudest moment because it's the work. It's the work and knowing you're doing great work and working with great people. It doesn't have anything to do with how many people see it. It was rewarding. Or how much money you make. He made probably like $1,000 a week. 900 a week. And you took 300 for the rent. (laughs) So I had nothing. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to move to the next level. Biggest disappointment? Um, I don't know. You know, I mean, there's definitely... uh, movies and stuff you were up for that you didn't get, you know, Brendan Fraser got them or, you know, I mean, there's no disappointments, man. I can't look back at anything and be sour grapes. I adore it. You know, I love, you know, that a lot of my family has moved out here. I love that I'm accepted uh, at the improv with other comics. And I love that I can get into Musso and Frank's without a reservation. And barefooted. <laughs> I have to let everybody know <laughs> Musso and Franks is up near Hollywood. Legendary. Boulevard, and all the movie stars from the beginning of time went there, and it's still there, and the waiters with the red vests, yeah. and it's an amazing place. If you ever want to take a date there, you're coming. Go to there. lunch, and it's not so crowded and busy. Just go to lunch, and you can, and it's, but hey, there's no price change on the lunch or dinner menu. Well, you still got to pay. For you, the cheapest guy in the world, I'm sure that's... <laughs> I have the tongue sandwich. When's the last time you ever tipped 20% for anything? On the way over here today at 7-Eleven. All right. Just... <laughs> <laughs> last question. What advice do you have for the young person growing up in a town that there's nothing or you have very little resources or anything or anybody all over the world that just has some dream to do something and how to get to the next level and have the kind of career you've had. Well, I just feel that, you know, there was no social media when I was coming up. So don't read all of it and don't believe all of it. There's going to be 50% that you say something bad and 50%, but they have no interest in you whatsoever. So just believe in your heart and, you know, you know when it's right and when it's wrong and um, just pursue your dreams. And that's all you can do is work hard and, uh, you know, stay true to yourself. And, and um, you know, with a little God-given luck, maybe, you know, just just pursue what you want to do. I mean, look, look at the people we know, Barry, that came from nothing and they're here because they wouldn't give up. They They wouldn't give up because... There was a talent there, you know, there was something that everybody set, kept saying go forward on. So I just uh, think that um, you have to believe in yourself and believe the people that you keep around you and stay strong. And what do they say in England? Keep a stiff upper lip and carry on. Anthony Clark, this was awesome. This is one of the most unique and bizarre podcasts I have ever been a part of in my life. This has been the worst day of my life. I cannot wait to get out of here. I'm in adult diapers. <laughs> he has had me sitting here in my own stew for 12 hours. What do you think of your first podcast? I liked it. Yeah, I thought it was good. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. 
It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Bruce Turner from Stephenville, Texas. Congratulations, Bruce. Also, I figure... I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Okay, landing on Love is Purple, July 16, 2013. Heading reads, My Dream Came True, five stars. They write, I love BK. I still think the best episodes of More Stories are the ones with Barry. It only makes sense that he should have his own podcast. He has interesting info on showbiz, and he's a great storyteller. Go, Barry. Well, thank you, Love is Purple. Congratulations. As always, this has been another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.